Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Titus chapter 1. Titus is one of the three letters we have that the Apostle Paul wrote to encourage younger pastors in the Christian ministry. As such, they're often referred to collectively as the pastoral epistles. We have 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus together in this group. In terms of timeline, these letters have traditionally been understood as having been composed after Paul's release from the Roman imprisonment described at the end of the book of Acts, And before his imprisonment in the fall of A.D. 64 under Nero, which led to his death. In between these two imprisonments, Paul appears to have been very busy, as you can well imagine. Titus 1.5 implies that Paul had been to Crete and mentions that he planned to winter in Nicopolis, about 300 kilometers northwest of Athens on the west coast of Greece, where it seems that Titus did in fact join him before being dispatched by Paul further north from there to the region of Dalmatia, according to 2 Timothy 4.10. Most commentators assume that Titus was written at the same time as 1 Timothy, perhaps before, perhaps after, it's impossible to say, but definitely before 2 Timothy, which is generally regarded as the last letter Paul wrote before he was beheaded. Thus, a date somewhere around A.D. 62 would seem to be appropriate. Titus is mentioned 12 times in the New Testament, so you probably know more about him than you realize. He was very much a part of Paul's inner circle, along with Timothy, Tychicus, and Artemis. He was a Greek who remained uncircumcised throughout his life and ministry, unlike Timothy. Now, Timothy was half Greek and half Jewish, so that may have been a factor in terms of his decision. But Titus was 100% Greek, according to Galatians 2.3. And Paul makes much of the fact that the other apostles in Jerusalem did not insist that Titus be circumcised. He was accepted as a leader in the first generation of the church despite being a Gentile, and despite not being a proselyte convert to Judaism, which, as you may recall, was one of the earliest controversies in the church. Some people were saying that a Greek person like Titus would have to first convert to Judaism. He would have to be circumcised and learn to eat only kosher and learn all about the Jewish feast days. He would have to basically become a Jew before he could become a Christian. It was a a two-step process in the minds of many but not in the mind of the Apostle Paul. He believed, and was supported by the other apostles, that a Gentile could skip all of that and come directly into right relationship with God through the person and work of Christ, and be accepted as an equal, and even as a pastor, an elder, and a leader in the church. And Titus, for Paul, was exhibit A in that very important argument. Now, in terms of his unique character and abilities, we don't know as much as we would like to know, but it appears that Titus had strong administrative gifts, as he seems to have served as Paul's fixer in several delicate situations. He was Paul's delegate in the sensitive matter of the Corinthian collection. 
You may recall that the Corinthians got off to a great start on that project, but then due to a bit of a fallout with Paul, the project stalled, and Titus was dispatched to get it back online. He also served as the negotiator with the Corinthians in the hopes of repairing their relationship with Paul, their founding pastor. Here in Titus 1.5, we're told that the apostle assigned him to Crete so that he might set things in order, appointing pastors and elders in every town. So obviously Titus was a man who knew how to get things done. He was a leader, a builder, a pioneer, and a faithful friend. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching, with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Now, if you've already read First and Second Timothy, then you may be struck here by how much longer this salutation is when compared to those other letters. Paul made use of standard Greek epistolary form when writing his letters, but he usually added a little flourish or expansion that tipped his hand in the salutation uh, in terms of the major themes that he intended to explore in the body of the letter. But here, that typical slight flourish has ballooned into a fairly impressive paragraph in its own right. Now, obviously, it's possible to go down the rabbit hole on details like this. We can ask all sorts of questions that we aren't really in a position to answer. Uh, did Paul intend to write a longer letter? Uh, did he think that Titus needed more buttressing in his role than had Timothy? Did Titus have doubts about Paul's extraordinary authority? What exactly is Paul trying to signal or anticipate in this very wordy and complicated salutation? And of course, it's difficult to answer any of those questions with certainty. All we can do is look at what Paul actually said and try to understand it. The first interesting phrase comes in the middle of verse 1. Paul says that he is a servant of God. That in itself is a little bit odd. He usually refers to himself as a servant of Christ. But since for Paul, Christ was God, we shouldn't make too much of that. But he says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. That's the part I want to draw your attention to. That phrase, God's elect or God's chosen ones, is a very common Old Testament way of speaking about the Jewish people. In the Old Testament, the chosen people were, of course, the people of Israel. But here is Paul saying that he is writing this letter for the benefit of God's elect, his chosen people in Crete. These are Gentiles, predominantly, who are now to be understood as the chosen people of God. And of course, that's fascinating. We wonder if Paul made special mention of that because Titus was, as we mentioned, a Greek pastor in what was still a largely Jewish movement. Maybe he wanted them to know that they were not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God, and he was not sending them a second-class pastor. They were all together, the chosen people of God. Praise the Lord. Paul says he has written for their sake and for the sake of their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. That's another interesting and noteworthy phrase. 
we should appreciate that in Paul's mind, election, knowledge, and godly living all belong together. This is the salvation and the way of life that was promised long ago and that has been manifested now through the preaching of the gospel. This is the particular charge that has been given to Paul and that governs all of his decisions, writings, and movements, including, of course, the decision to send Titus to the people of Crete. There is more we could say here, but we need to keep moving. We jump back into the letter now at verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, we presume that this letter was written after Paul's release from the imprisonment narrated at the end of the book of Acts and before he was re-arrested, tried, and executed under Nero. We don't know as much as we would like about Paul's activity during this time, but obviously one of the things he did was visit the island of Crete. He says that he left Titus there to set things in order. We presume then that Paul and Titus had conducted an evangelistic tour of the island, or at least a great swath of the island. Crete is actually the largest of the Greek islands and would have had many towns and villages, but apparently Paul and Titus made the rounds. Now, having let those seeds sit for a little bit, Paul is sending Titus back out to retrace their steps, as it were, and to turn those clusters of converts into little congregations. This, by the way, is exactly the pattern followed by Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14. It would be worth going to read that. When they came to the end of the line in Derbe, in terms of the geography of the region, it says that they turned around and retraced their steps, strengthening the believers and appointing elders in every church in each town where they had visited. You can read about that in Acts 14, 21 to 23. So this is that. Only this time, Paul isn't going to stay to help out with that part of the process. He's going to entrust that work to Titus alone, which is interesting. Now, of course, I approach this text as a committed Baptist. I have a deep and convictional appreciation for Baptist congregational polity. And yet, I must admit, this is not it. As a Baptist, I would rather the text say here that, that these local clusters each elected their own elders and, and chose one or two of them to be full-time vocational preachers, and, and they made a budget and voted on that as well. But that's not what the text says. It says that an apostolic delegate named Titus went back around to the towns where Paul had preached, perhaps weeks or at most months before, and inspected the faith and character of the converts and assembled them into churches and appointed officers according to a set of criteria he had been given. Now, that's not Baptist, not by a long shot, but it was in this situation necessary and expedient. I'd, I'd like to think that in subsequent generations with some maturity and solidity under their belts, the church would have been able to take responsibility for these matters on their own. But for now, in this founding generation, 
It had to be done in a certain way. And I think that is instructive for us. Certain perfections of polity may better suit certain stages of the life of the church in every age. Congregational polity works really well when you have a wide base of biblically literate members. But it probably doesn't work when no one in your church has been saved more than a calendar year. I think that's worth pointing out. Now, as for the list itself, we notice immediately that it is similar to the list given in 1 Timothy 3, but not identical. Meaning that these are general principles as opposed to fixed criteria. In general, an elder should be a truly saved person who is showing the fruits of the Spirit, who is living in a respectable manner, who is committed to Christian monogamy, who is teaching the gospel to his children, who is not a drunk or a rabble-rouser. He must be humble, patient, gentle, hospitable, upright in character, and disciplined in his habits. He must be able to teach and to correct when called upon. That's the general idea. Now, here in Titus 1.5, Paul uses the word presbyteros, which the ESV translates as elder. This is the Greek word that gives us our English word presbyterian. A presbyterian church is an elder-led church. That's literally what the word means. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul uses the word episcope, which means overseer and which gives us our word episcopal. Now, the Presbyterian version of church polity today is very different than the Episcopal version of church polity today. But originally in the first generation, these words were clearly synonyms. In fact, Paul uses the word episcope that he used in 1 Timothy 3. He uses that word also in this paragraph, in Titus 1.7. You can see that for yourself because the ESV shifts to overseer in verse 7 there. So the words were both used to express the concept of rule by mature overseers. Donald Guthrie, for example, says here, in both epistles, the terms elder and overseer appear to be used interchangeably. Titus 1, 5-7 is conclusive for the view that these two terms could describe the same people. And this fact is now generally accepted among New Testament scholars, closed quote. Now, of course, there's a lot that develops later in church history in terms of polity. But what we can say with a fair degree of confidence is that in the first generation, local churches were ruled over by a plurality of mature overseers. If the church was large enough, one or two of those would have been salaried preachers. So see 1 Timothy 5.17. Or if there were several smaller churches in a region, that entire region might share salaried circuit preachers. But each congregation appears to have been ruled by mature elders and overseers. Now, why is this necessary? Paul begins to tell us that in verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths 
and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Closed quote. It would seem then that Paul is telling Titus to recruit some strong, mature men to serve as elders in these churches who are able to teach sound doctrine and who have the backbone to correct those who depart from the truth because such people appear to have been quite numerous and active in the church in Crete. The particular error sounds very similar to the error being addressed in 1 Timothy. Remember, we, we're not sure whether 1 Timothy was written first and then Titus or Titus and then 1 Timothy. Certainly, they were both written before 2 Timothy. But Paul wrote these letters at the same time, and he appears to be addressing a common trend, a trend and a characteristic and an error that was common in multiple regions. So in 1 Timothy, Paul wrote to that young pastor, Timothy, and told him, this is 1 Timothy 1, 3-7, he said, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions, close quote. So you can hear a lot of remarkably similar language between these two passages. Leading George W. Knight III to write, this false teaching is then like that found in 1 Timothy, but with a Cretan flavor as well. In some, it is concerned with Jewish myths and genealogies, which apparently set the tone for the way in which it handles the law. It is ascetic, but also rebellious and disobedient. It opposes the apostolic teaching and turns away from it, and it is motivated by gain, closed quote. So it would seem like we have a group of Jewish Cretan mystics who are presenting themselves as experts in the true meaning of the Old Testament and who deal in bizarre and irrelevant speculation. The modern-day comparison that comes to mind would be the people on the internet who claim to have figured out the mystical significance of certain Jewish feast days, or the potential eschatological significance of the coming blood moon. People will pay big money for that kind of nonsense, and if you don't stamp it out, it can be a giant distraction and source of division in your church. So Paul tells Titus to recruit some men with backbone so that they can keep their church faithful and focused on the task at hand. In verses 14 to 15, Paul refers to the commands of people who turn away from the truth. And then he says that to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Here he seems to be making a very astute observation. It is often the inwardly defiled who are obsessively concerned with external purity. Beware of any version of Christianity that is externally as opposed to internally focused. Tim Chester writes usefully here, Sex and food are not corrupt. 
We are the ones who make sex and food corrupt when we use them in sinful and selfish ways. It is not that we are corrupted if we come into contact with sex or food. Rather, sex and food are corrupted when they come into contact with people with impure hearts. So things like sex, food, and drink are pure when we view them as good gifts from God and use them for His glory in accordance with His word. The true Christian is not to be worldly in the sense of being corrupted by the priorities and values of the world, but we are to enjoy all God's generous provisions in this world. Abstaining from his good gifts can be just as corrupt and corrupting as abusing them, closed quote. Listen, there have always been people who are very legalistic, who delight in eccentric readings of the Old Testament, who claim to have some sort of secret understanding of things, who in fact do not know God, and who clearly deny the gospel through their actions and commitments. Such people are not saved and are not suited for any kind of kingdom work. And a good church will appoint strong, wise, watchful leaders who understand the difference between zeal and maturity, and who will keep such people from distracting or dividing the congregation. Thanks be to God. And thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you would like to support this program, please consider leaving us a rating or a review on iTunes as it will help other people find and access these materials. If you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find our entire library of content over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, just go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right-hand corner. You can also contribute through the Into the Word app. We hope to connect with you again really soon right here for another episode of Into the Word.